Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 17? This morning I want to pick it up in verse 14 of John, chapter 17, where Jesus is praying to his Father and says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. This was part of a prayer request that Jesus offered to his heavenly father on the night before his crucifixion. It's known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus, John 17. Some have called it the holy of holies of the gospels because we get an intimate look at the communion between the Father and the Son. Now, to give you just a little bit of background, the evening had begun earlier with the disciples and the Lord eating the Passover in the upper room. At one point, Judas gets up, leaves to carry out his betrayal of Christ. Jesus continues a teaching that he began even before dinner, a teaching that was going to be his final teaching before the cross. It was very important that he communicated to them one last time some of the things that he had told them earlier, some of the lessons that he had taught them, and some of the things that they could expect on the horizon in the next hours and days ahead. At one point, they left the upper room and began to walk through the streets of Jerusalem, walk through the temple precincts, on their way to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus would spend the remainder of the evening in prayer. As they're walking, he continues this teaching. By the time we come to chapter 17 now, he has finished his teaching of the disciples, and now he begins to pray to his Father. Chapter 17 contains this prayer, and it really divides itself into three main parts. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays to his Father for himself telling the Father that he had finished all the work the Father had given him to do. He had glorified the Father's name on the earth. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus then moves to praying for his disciples, those who were with him that evening. And then finally, in verses 20 through 26, he expands his prayer to include all of his disciples, all that would ever believe in him throughout the church age, including the present day, which means he prayed for all of us that night as well. Now, there are so many beautiful little details to this prayer that we could spend a lot of time looking at. And we, when we studied John 17, we kind of looked at these things a little more in detail. But for the sake of this study this morning, I want us to just take a few steps back and look at this prayer as a whole, kind of sum it up, kind of look at what Jesus was talking about in general. And if we do that, we realize that he is asking the Father to give his disciples, all of his disciples, victory so that we might overcome the world even as he had overcome the world. The word world used here in John 17 appears 19 times. And every time it appears, it is the Greek word cosmos. In this context, cosmos refers to the fallen world system that is controlled by the devil and which is in rebellion against God. The philosophies, the people, 
everything in this world that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, everything that is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible in this world, Satan controls. And so Jesus is praying that his disciples would overcome these evil forces, that the Father would grant them victory, that he would give them grace to become overcomers, even as Jesus had overcome the devil. In fact, you remember, he ends chapter 16, which was the end of his teaching, with a kind of a cry of victory. He said in verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, talking to his disciples, that in me you may have peace. In the world... You're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. And I almost hear him raise his voice a little. I have overcome the world. And after he declares his victory, he then proceeds to pray to his father for his disciples that they also would experience this victory, that they too would become overcomers. And if you read this prayer carefully, the underlying idea or principle is that of warfare. It's warfare. We see it come through in verse 11, where he said, Father, now I am no longer in the world, but these, my disciples, are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be what? One as we are one. You see, it was important that Jesus pray for the unity of his disciples, because he knew that there is strength in unity. You see, they were going to be going out soon, carrying the gospel into this world, a world antagonistic towards the things of God. He earlier in the evening in chapter 15 said, if you were of the world, the world would love you because the world loves those that belong to it. But you're not of the world. I've called you out of the world. And so the world is going to hate you and persecute you even as they have done to me. And so this is weighing heavy on his mind. The struggles that the disciples are going to be facing now, that he's going to be leaving them physically. As we praise Father, they're going to need to be unified. If they're, if, there's, there's, if they're one with each other, even as we are one, they're going to be victorious. Father, I pray that you would give them the grace to be one, to be unified. We see this warfare come through clearly in verses 14 and 15, where he said, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. You see, he's, he's referring to the struggles, the warfare that his disciples were going to experience with the devil. And he was praying for their victory. You see, Jesus came into this world, a world of darkness, as the light of God. In the scriptures, light and darkness are often used as metaphors. Light is often used in the scriptures to represent God. The Bible says God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So often light in the scriptures is used to represent God and spiritual truth. And darkness is often used to represent Satan. We call him the prince of darkness. So it represents Satan oftentimes and spiritual error. When John began his gospel... He began his gospel with these words. He said, in the beginning was the word. The word is a title for Jesus Christ. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. 
and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the, listen, light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. See, John is telling us that the true light, Jesus Christ, invaded a world of darkness, spiritual and moral evil, so that people could know the truth of God and find their way back to God. Oh, and the darkness was not happy about it. But the darkness couldn't do anything about it. That's why John says, and the darkness could not comprehend the light. The Greek is actually, and the darkness could not extinguish or overcome the light. You see, light is always more powerful than darkness. The lies and deceptions of the devil are never a match for the truth of God, which is in Christ Jesus, the truth that Jesus came to bring to this world. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8? He said to his disciples, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall probably make you free. Possibly. I hope it does. I'm praying for you. And the truth will make you free. The truth, of course, in that context, he's talking about the gospel, but all the word of God. There is no power of the devil that can hold a person in darkness if the light is presented and they embrace it. The worst sinner, I don't care how in bondage they are to anything, if they hear the gospel and they receive it into their heart, God will give them, of course, new life. The spirit will come inside and all the bonds and chains of the devil will be broken. The, darkness is, the light is always more powerful than is the darkness. Jesus knew that. And of course, in this context, the light is the word. And he's praying for his people to be overcomers. And so 19 times he talks about the world because he knew the world was coming against them. Eight different times he talks about the word of God, which he had given to them because he knew that was the only thing that would give them the victory, that would make them overcomers. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, John said, I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. How can a young man cleanse his way, the psalmist asked, by taking heed according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. D.L. Moody had written on the cover of his Bible, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And that's up to us. But the word of God is living and it's powerful. Listen to what the word says of itself. It says that we are saved by the word, James 1.21. We are cleansed by the word, Ephesians 5.26. We are sanctified by the word, John 17, 17. We are guided by the word, Psalm 119, verse 105. We are enlightened by the word, Psalm 19, verse 8. And we are kept by the word, Psalm 17, verse 4. And that's just a few of the things the word of God does for us and is to us. 
And there are so many other scriptures that talk about the word of God and it's how vital it is to the life of the believer. You see, God's word is truth. And it is the only thing that can save and sanctify a person. Satan knows it. And that's why the devil tries so hard to undermine and destroy it. And has done so from the very beginning. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the first attack on the truth of God. This is where the war against God's word begins. I just want to read you the first five verses. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here the father of lies offers up the first lie he ever fed to the human race, which at this point consisted of just two people, Adam and Eve. And the very first lie that the devil told Eve, the very first thing in the way of deception that he did, he was to tell Eve that God didn't tell her the truth. That was the very first lie of the devil. To tell Eve that God didn't tell her the truth. Notice, he doesn't come right out and call God a liar. Satan is much too subtle for that. First, he tries to get Eve to doubt what God has said. He said to her, Has God indeed said that you shall not eat of all the trees of the garden? Satan kind of gently sows doubt in Eve's mind as to what God said. And here we have the first question in the Bible, posing the first dilemma in human history. There were no dilemmas before this. This is the first question that appears in the Bible and poses the first dilemma in human history. And notice the question is carefully crafted by Satan to start Eve down the path of doubting God's word. Why? Because he knows that if he can get us to doubt the word of God, he can get us to eventually reject the word of God and ultimately the will of God, because that's what the Bible is. It's God's will expressed on the pages of Scripture. So if he can get us to doubt the word of God, he can get us ultimately to reject it, and then beyond that, to reject the will of God. And when we do that, now we're in a position where we are doing whatever seems right in our own eyes. We're leaning on our own understanding. The very thing the, the uh, Solomon said in the book of Proverbs was the wrong thing to do. When people reject God's word, then they begin to do whatever seems right in their own eyes. That happens to be the sad testimony of the book of Judges which was one of the blackest periods in Israel's history. A period characterized by lawlessness and murder and wickedness and sexual impurity and all these other horrible, dark things. And sprinkled throughout the book, we hear this phrase, 
There was no king in Israel, and therefore every man did whatever seemed right in his own eyes. A king spoke of authority. Authority. In America, we used to be a nation under God. He was our king. He was the authority, and his word was the authority in our lives. But we have deposed him. We have removed him from his throne in our society. And now we have been set adrift in a sea of moral relativism where everybody is doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. Look around. How are we doing? Not so good. Not so good. It all starts with doubting what God has said. In fact, verse 1 in the Hebrew could be translated, so God has said, has he? And for the first time, the most deadly spiritual force was covertly smuggled into the world. What was it? The assumption that what God has said is subject to human judgment, as one author put it. The most deadly covert force in the world was smuggled into the human race at this point. The assumption that what God has said is subject to human judgment. Notice where the attack was centered by the devil. The attack centered on the one prohibition that God had placed on Adam and Eve. That one tree that God said they couldn't eat from. Now, I wasn't there in the garden, of course. But there must have been hundreds of trees, maybe thousands. Beautiful, fruit-bearing trees that they could eat freely from. He says that they can't eat from just one tree. And that becomes the point at which the devil attacks. What is it about us? God says, enjoy life. There's so many things you can enjoy freely. Just don't do these things. Or in the garden, he says, look, eat of all the trees, but just one. Now, if any one of us were there, you know how human nature is. I can just see God putting us there and saying, look, this beautiful garden is before you. I've given you thousands of wonderful trees that bear all kinds of luscious fruits. Eat freely. There's just one tree that I don't want you to eat from. What are you going to say? Where is that tree? Because I'm drawn to that. I'm drawn to what I can't do. There was a hotel, I believe down south, and the way the hotel was laid out, there was, uh, there was you know, it was multiple levels. And, and like from the second uh, floor, there was a balcony uh, off of each of the uh, rooms that, over was, that actually extended over a lake. Well, there was fish in this lake, and so the, the, the hotel really didn't want people fishing off the balcony. So they put a sign on each of the little fences that, 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 on the balconies that said, please do not fish off the balcony. Well, guess what was the big problem in that hotel? Everybody fishing off the balcony. And they called in some experts and said, what are we supposed to do about this? The guy said, take the signs down. You want somebody walking on your grass? Just put up a sign that says, don't walk on the grass. You ever been to my office when you walk in, there's like a little wooden fence partition that separates the entrance away from where the garbage thing is. And there's like a little mailbox, which I don't know what they use it for, but there's, you know, there's, they, they use it for something. A little mailbox. Those of you who have been there know what I'm talking about. On the mailbox, they got a little sign that says, please don't use for trash. 
Every time I walk by that thing, there's cups and things sticking out of this thing. I feel like taking down the sign. It's just something about our human nature. If you tell me I can't do it, I want to do it. (laughs) And so the devil attacks at this one point. And he's trying to convince Eve, I think, and then later Adam, that God is being unnecessarily restrictive and narrow. What he's doing, he's saying to her, Eve, look, God wants to limit your freedom and rob you of the fulfillment you deserve. Does that sound familiar today? That, that basically is the playboy philosophy in a nutshell. Hugh Hefner, some time ago, I think it was like the 50th anniversary or the 25th anniversary of the whole Playboy enterprise, and he was being interviewed quite a bit, and he made the statement. He said, if Jesus Christ was alive today, he wouldn't belong to a church because churches have no joy, they have no fun. He'd be a member of our Playboy staff. Now, there's a man who is deeply deceived, deeply disturbed and deceived. But that's the mentality. That's the mentality. Now, not only does this attack undermine the word of God, it also is a direct frontal assault on the character of God. Think about it. If Satan can get Eve or any one of us to think that God is really not all that good or all that loving, why? Because he withholds from us things that are beneficial. If I buy into that and I begin to think that God really is trying to keep from me things that are good and beneficial, I'm not going to think he's a very good God. I'm not going to think he has my best interests at heart. And I'm not going to want him to control my life. And that was this thing that also Satan tried to do in Eve's heart. In fact, Satan makes Eve think that he cares more about her than God does. Why? Well, Eve, you know. God is being restrictive here. He's limiting you. See, I want you to reach your full potential. I want you to reach to have all the experiences in life that you deserve. I don't want to keep anything from you. I want you to have experienced life in all of its fullness. God, he is narrow. He is restrictive. He wants to limit your fun and the experiences that are good in life. Now, at this point, Eve isn't really ready to take the bait completely. So she tries in kind of a weak way to defend God. In verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, and that was her first mistake, talking to a serpent. I mean, I mean, her first mistake was not being suspicious of a talking snake. That was where she first made her mistake. But So the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, it's interesting. In defending God's word, she adds something to it. I read nowhere in the Bible where God said that she couldn't touch the fruit of that tree. God said, you shall not eat the fruit of that tree. But she adds, and we can't touch it either. Otherwise, we're going to die. You know, we all know the dangers of taking things away from God's word. How serious that is, right? Yet there's people today that do it all the time. They will pick and choose from God's word, leaving things out that they don't want to deal with. Thomas Jefferson did that, by the way. 
Maybe you've heard of the Jefferson Bible. He took the New Testament and basically edited it. He cut out, literally, all the passages he didn't agree with. So, all the miracles went. I haven't read it, but probably the passages on judgment, because that's, that's typical. And what we're probably left were all the passages that talk about God's goodness and His love and His mercy and His grace. And those are wonderful passages. But they only reflect part of God's character. We know how serious that is. But we also need to understand how serious it is when people add to the Word of God. That's also just as serious. And people do that today all the time as well. In fact, the Mormon church has added a whole book to the New Testament. They call it the Book of Mormon. And they've added this whole book. And when the New Testament conflicts with the Book of Mormon, they will tell you, well, the Book of Mormon is the authority authority because the New Testament wasn't translated correctly. It was corrupted. And so uh, God gave Joseph Smith Jr., you know, the Book of Mormon, and and it is the truth, and it's the authority, and, and, and rely on that. Of course, the Christian science people, their founder, Mary Baker, whatever her name was, she was married about 12 times, so she had all these, you know. But she wrote, what, Keys of the Scriptures? You know, you can't understand the Scriptures unless you have... My books that give you the keys to understand the scriptures. But we have other groups today too. The Philippian jailer fell down at the feet of Paul the Apostle and said, What must I do to be saved? What did Paul tell him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. People come along and say, well, Yeah, that's fine, but you've got to believe plus be water baptized. Or you've got to believe plus keep the Ten Commandments. Or you've got to believe plus be a member of the Roman Catholic Church, go to Mass and keep the sacraments. Or whatever else people add to the Word of God. That's a serious thing. And God said very clearly in the book of Revelation, yes, primarily looking at the book of Revelation, but I think it applies to all of His Word myself. He said, if anybody takes away from the things written in this book, I will take their name away from the book of life. And if anybody adds anything to the prophecies of this book, I will add to them the plagues that are written in this book. God says, look, you don't mess with my word. I placed my word above my name. Man has no right to sit in judgment of my word, editing it, changing it, adding or subtracting to and from it. I am God. I say what I mean and mean what I say. You don't need, I don't need anybody to come along and try to revise or clarify or whatever. It is my word. You accept it or you reject it, but that's all you can do with it. Now, it could be at this point. Eve is beginning to buy into the devil's lie. When he said, look, Eve, did God really say that you can't eat of all the trees in the garden? And she said, well, he said we could eat of all the trees, but this one tree said we couldn't eat anything from it or even touch it, lest we die. And it could be that she's starting to think that God is overly restrictive. And without realizing it, she's kind of making it sound like God has said more than he really has said. And so she's maybe thinking, you know, yeah, yeah, he said we couldn't eat it and we couldn't even touch it. Yeah, maybe he is a little bit restrictive. And so she's starting to go down that path. And at this point, Satan knows that he's got her right where he wants her. So he just comes out with this bold-faced lie. In verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. First of all, Satan tells you, you can't trust God's word. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. It isn't the path of true fulfillment, Eve. He's trying to keep you from fulfillment. And then secondly, he tells her, look, you won't surely die. In other words, Eve, do whatever you think is right. You do whatever you think is right. And even if it contradicts what God has said, don't worry about it. There will be no consequences. No judgment. I mean, can you hear the devil today voicing that philosophy to this world? He's in control of this world. The whole world lies under the control of the wicked one, John tells us. And so because he controls the world, it shouldn't surprise us that we can hear his voice in the things of this world. Give an example. No boundaries. That's the motto of the Ford Motor Company. No rules. Outback Steakhouse. (laughs) One company I heard about, their motto was, live outside the lines. Right? What are they saying? They are parroting the God of this world who has been pumping into the people of this world for almost 6,000 years the philosophy that started in the Garden of Eden. Do whatever you think is right. No rules. No boundaries. You make the rules. You do whatever you want. There's going to be no consequences. There won't be any judgment. That is the big lie of today, folks. But it's not just today. It got started a long time ago. And people are still buying into it today. And why should they live this way? Because Satan has convinced them they're their own God. They don't need to listen to any other God other than themselves. Look within. Let your own heart lead you. What, What is that voice inside you saying? You go ahead and make your own rules. Live your own life without any interference from God. You're a God. Isn't that what the devil was basically telling Eve here? If you eat that fruit, Eve, you'll achieve enlightenment and ascend to Godhood. That's why God doesn't want you to eat the fruit. He's, he doesn't want any competition. He knows if you eat that fruit, your eyes will be open. You'll be enlightened. And you will be like God. He doesn't want the competition. That's why he doesn't want you to eat from that tree. It's not because he wants to keep you from something bad. He wants to keep you from something good. All of a sudden, the adversary is her friend, and her friend, the Lord, is now the adversary. And so Eve, verse 6, saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So Eve, with the serpent's help, became the first person on earth to doubt and deny the validity and the authority of God's word, opting instead to do what seemed right in her own eyes. And in so doing, she became a judge over God's word instead of allowing the word of God to be the judge and final authority over her life and conduct, now she was sitting in judgment of God's word. Look around. This is the big problem today. There is no king in America. So everyone is doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. In other words, there's no authority. The word of God used to be the authority. There was a time when even unbelievers reverenced the word of God. 
Benjamin Franklin was not a believer. George Whitfield tried all of his ministry to convert the guy. But Benjamin Franklin knew the Bible better than a lot of Christians today. He respected it. He revered it in many ways. But today there is no authority. If we have any authorities, it's the so-called experts. We'll talk more about them as this series progresses. It's sad, though. It's tragic that people are no longer letting the word of God judge them and be the final authority over their life. Now they are sitting in judgment of God's word. Well, I don't believe this. I know what God has said in the Bible, but I don't think that's right. No wonder we are seeing so many lives devastated, broken, marriages crumbling, kids in rebellion. God gave us lines to live our lives in, which are the truths of his word, because he knew that to stay within those boundaries would give us a blessed, healthy, and happy life. To go outside the, the lines, to live outside the boundaries, that's lawlessness and rebellion, and that's what got us into this mess in the first place. And we are proving it every single day. Contrast this with how Jesus handled Satan. When he came to Jesus in the wilderness, remember he was fasting for 40 days, the Lord Jesus Christ? And the devil came and tempted him three times. And each time, what did the Lord say in response? He said, it is written. And he used the word of God. He didn't argue with the devil. He didn't try to talk with the devil. Eve made her mistake when she began to dialogue with the devil. You don't dialogue with the devil. When he comes tempting you, you just give the word of God and then move on. But she didn't. She dialogued. She listened. She was deceived. She ate. She fell. And so did Adam. And so began the long war against God's word. And from Genesis to Revelation, we see a constant, relentless battle of lies against the truth in the form of false prophets and false shepherds and false Christs. We see them today, atheists, agnostics, other antagonists who oppose the word of God and who refuse to come to the love of the truth that they might be saved. They're everywhere. They laugh and mock at the word of God. They make fun out of you as Christians because you live such a narrow, limiting life. They, they're free. You're a fool, they say. You know, I always think of the French atheist Voltaire. Voltaire was a real antagonist. I mean, he was merciless when it came to putting down Christians and mocking the word of God. He made the prediction that within 100 years of his death, the Bible would be eradicated from the face of the earth because people are getting more and more enlightened and they would finally catch on that the Bible is nothing more than the book of superstition and fairy tales. It's for idiots. Isn't it interesting that almost 100 years to the day after Voltaire died, the, the uh, a Bible society moved into his house, bought his house, and used his own printing press to kick out thousands of copies of the New Testament. I think God doesn't have a sense of humor. He's got a sense of humor. Of course, Voltaire was very cocky and arrogant when he was in good health. But as his health began to wane and it became clear that he was dying, he grabbed his doctor one day. He said, I'll give you half of everything I own. He was a very wealthy man. If you give me just six more months of life. That doctor didn't have life in himself. As Jesus said, I have life in me. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And so the doctor could do nothing for him. And as Voltaire lay in his deathbed, dying, 
as the darkness began to close in on him like a shroud, it began to smother him. He began to cry and scream, more light, more light. His nurse came out white as a sheet and vowed never again to attend the death of an atheist. That's how it is with people who mock and criticize the word of God. There is coming a day when those mocks and taunts are going to come to an end because every man's life comes to an end. And then he will stand before his God. But critics come and go, and yet the word of God still remains strong. As we bring this to a close, I love, I love what H.L. Hastings said. Listen to this. He said, and I quote, Infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels with all their assaults make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would in the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his domain, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and princes, priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die, and the book still lives. End quote. Folks, I've got good news. I peeked in the back of the book. <laughs> Guess what? We win. We win. We will win the war because the devil has already been defeated at Calvary, right? However, that does not, and listen to me, that does not mean that we do not have to fight the battles of the Lord every day right now. Just because we win doesn't mean we give up the fight now and that we have no struggles with the devil right now. We can just be A-W-O-L. We can't be. Because you know what's at stake? The people you love, people I love, our families, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. We are locked in a battle with darkness as the light of this world with the powers of the devil for the souls of mankind. That's what's at stake. Yeah, we win. But a lot of people along the way are going to lose. They need to know the truth. And we have been commissioned by the Lord to tell them in a loving way, the truth of God. We must be about fighting the battles of the Lord right now. Even as Jude admonished, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, for the truth. The word contend means to struggle, agonize, fight with every breath in your body for the truth, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Paul admonished Timothy, a young pastor, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Martin Luther, who was no stranger to fighting the good fight of faith, who was a man who knew very well what it meant to stand up against darkness and be a light, 
Here's what he said. Listen carefully to this. He said, and I quote, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point, end quote. In other words, what Luther is saying is this. He said, look, it doesn't matter if you're going to fight the battles of the Lord everywhere. If you run from the battle that the devil is really engaging people in at that moment, you can be faithful in every other area. But it's no better than if you were just to turn tail and run openly. In other words, if a person denies the deity of Christ and you want to witness to them, it doesn't make any sense or any difference if you get them to accept everything else that the Christian faith teaches. You've got to engage them at that point. That's where the battle line has been drawn. That's where the devil is really, you know, working in their heart. We've got to engage them at that point. The same is with the culture. All this politically correct stuff, a lot of Christians run from that. I hear churches using politically correct terminology. Why? Because they don't want to engage the world at that point. But that's where the world is engaging us. That's where they've dropped the gauntlet. We can't sidestep that. We've got to engage them at that point in a loving, kind, but firm way and explain to them why politically correctness, political correctness is nothing more than Satan's deceptions, is nothing more than getting people to reject the love of the truth, that they might be saved. I'll give you one more scripture, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, and we'll close. Paul said, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now that's the struggle right there. See, we are fighting an enemy. He is the devil. The weapons of his warfare are lies and deception. We are the children of God, the light of this world. The weapons of our warfare are prayer and the word of God. So we have to use what God has given to us if we're going to have victory over the devil. If we're going to rescue people from the devil's grasp and bring them into the kingdom of God, he's going to use lies and deception. Now, with that thought in mind, I want to set up next week's study. And fasten your seatbelts because we have just launched into a study on the word of God that's going to take us into the next year. I'm telling you, there are things going on. in our. We, we understand attacks from without. We understand attacks from the world against the church, against the truth. What is really disturbing, I think you're going to be shocked when you hear the attacks the devil is attacking the truth of God, the word of God, from within the church. And we had better know what these lies are. Because that's the point at which we need to engage the enemy. 
whether they be wolves in sheep's clothing inside the church or just misguided saints that mean well but have never really been taught why these things are bad and you should not be involved in them because you're playing into the devil's hands who's trying to deceive you and to take you from what God has given to be sufficient for all life and conduct, the word of God. We don't need anything else. And so next week, we're talking about the lies of the devil. We're going to look at the lie of the devil. He said, what is that? There is a specific lie the Bible calls the lie, definite article. That lie got started in the Garden of Eden and it spawned every other false doctrine, teaching, philosophy that Satan has ever fed the human race. We'll study it next week. We'll see what the Bible says about it so we can understand it. And after we study the lie of the devil, we'll eventually then focus on knowing the truth of God because we need to understand what God has said about his word. And, and, and it used to be a given, but today, folks, people are confused. And we'll talk about a Barna poll who polled Christians, find out how much confusion there really is in the body of Christ. Pray that God give us grace to really study his word properly and that he would bless that study. Father, we thank you for your word. As our Lord Jesus Christ said, Father, your word is truth. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would bless these studies. Give us grace, Lord, as we seek to know your word better. That we seek to know the lies of the devil even better. That we might fight against them with the truth. And, Father, I pray that when it's all said and done, we will be people who are good soldiers of Jesus Christ, who have been equipped and who are willing to fight the good fight of faith and contend earnestly for the truth. Forgive us, Lord, if we have run from the battle. Forgive us for thinking, let somebody else fight the fight. We have all been called to contend for the faith earnestly with every breath that is within us. Give us grace to do that, Lord. But we need to study first to show ourselves approved unto God Workmen that do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing and learning and understanding the word of God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.